Hey, this is Joel Allen, the host of Biblical Conversations, honest conversation about difficult aspects of the Bible. Well, we are now 14 days into the new year, or it will be 14 days when you hear this, and I'm looking at a different focus for this podcast. We've had a lot of fun recently uh, doing, or since the start of the podcast, doing topics where we look at areas in the Bible where there are conflicting of a, a conflicting opinion, where there are issues in the Bible where people just have different perspectives and they're arguing it out within the Bible itself. So that's been the primary focus of Biblical Conversations, and we've done some other things. I've done some more devotional things. We did some stuff on, on uh, Messianic prophecy for the Christmas season. I did a, I, I've preached a few sermons and kind of gone over my sermon notes in the podcast. So there's been other things, but the primary focus of the podcast has been the difficult aspects of the Bible, primarily areas in which there's conflict and disagreement by Bible writers within the Bible itself. And so that's a fascinating topic, and there's tons more I could do. I have, I mentioned this before, on my, on my phone, an, an app, a notes app, of course, uh, and, I, uh, and I have like 35 of these areas that I've noticed in my own uh, devotional reading where there's differences of opinion within the Bible itself. So uh, that's been the topic, but for, uh, I've been recently increasingly interested in conversation about uh, social aspects or social questions of our day. and In other words, how can the Bible speak to the big moral questions of our day? So what I'm interested in is having honest conversation with friends, and this will primarily, as I go forward, be uh, conversations that are, you know, uh, discussion groups with other people rather than kind of myself alone in the studio as I am today. Uh, so I hope to do more of the conversations, actual conversations with friends, uh, because it's biblical conversations for crying out loud. So, but I'm interested in having conversations about the big social questions and issues of our day, and asking the question, what are some biblical texts that might speak to the way we frame our understanding of what God would have us do? The basic question we have to ask is, how does God want us to behave as human beings? What are my moral obligations to other human beings as God would see them, as I've created in the image of God and I'm put in this world for uh, for very specific reasons that relate to the purposes of God in this world? And, and what are my moral responsibilities to other people? How do I live in the world in so so in such a way that I'm living up to the standards of the discipleship model uh, laid out for us by Jesus Christ? And so it will be conversations with friends about biblical materials that relate to how we frame our understanding of our moral obligations and duties in this world. And so that's the idea as we go forward. Of course, uh, I'm a Methodist and a lot of the people will be speaking and I'm talking to will be Methodists. And so as Methodists, we love the scripture, tradition, experience, and reason uh, quadrilateral. And uh, so if you don't know about that, you can, uh, it's the basic idea that is often associated with John Wesley. It really comes from Albert Outler. But the idea that the basic way Methodists think is by asking a series of questions. The first would be, what does the scripture say about this topic? The second would be, what are the teachings of the church? The historical teachings of the church, maybe something from early Christianity, but maybe what's in the book of discipline now or the uh, other manuals? What are the teachings of the church on this topic? And the third is, what is my personal experience? How do I inform my perspective of this? 
this topic uh, through the light of the experience that I've had. And the fifth is, uh, what does reason say about this topic? What, what do the, is there a, something that's just blindingly clear to my common sense that I have to take into account? So scripture, tradition, experience, and reason, we often call this the STIR way of thinking, S-T-E-R. But in order to set the stage for that, I want to uh, have one, and I need one more episode before I'm ready to start uh, getting this all together to start this new way of uh, doing biblical conversations. So again, the big picture here is biblical conversations is going to start emphasizing more uh, conversations with friends about the major social, cultural, ethical questions of our day and and uh, asking how the Bible informs those, uh, what church traditions would say about these questions, and what our reason and experience would bring to bear. So that's the big question. And for what, I, what I'm going to do to, in today's episode is talk about a specific biblical text that I think helps to inform this transition. So this is a a talk that uh, I've been working on recently to give at our church, and and I think it might be helpful to present to you. And I wasn't even thinking about using this in my podcast, but then it occurred to me the other day, I said, this is a perfect transitionary text and a topic that I think uh, will be helpful for us as we make the shift from the way we've been doing biblical conversations to a new focus on ethics and, um, and how to apply faith to the practical big questions of our day. And so the topic that I'm going to be speaking about today is what I call the Josiah Enigma. So what is an enigma? An enigma, by definition, is a person or thing that's difficult or puzzling to understand. Something that's just perplexing. And when you read the story of Josiah in the Bible, it just doesn't make sense. There are things about it that are totally perplexing. So let's review the background on the Josiah episode in the Bible. This is 2 Kings chapters 22-23, and it also appears in 2 Chronicles, uh, I think chapter 35, although I don't have that written down. So as you know, Josiah was a boy king. He became king uh, at, I think, the age of eight, and he was uh, carried out one of the greatest reforms in Israel's history. A little bit of background on this very important king. Uh, He was by far the most important and righteous of all the kings of Israel other than King David. It says of him that he walked in all the ways of David his father and did not turn either to the right hand or to the left. And I don't think there's any other king of which it says those specific words, not turning from the ways and the laws of the Lord, either to the right hand or to the left. So King Josiah, in many ways, you could say he was even more righteous than King David because King David, of course, had his Bathsheba and other episodes that were uh, uh, episodes of personal moral failure. And yet Josiah in the Bible, there's not one instance in the Bible where it depicts anything of moral failure. It doesn't say, yet he left these idols in the land or he uh, didn't take down the idolatrous altars on the high mountains or on the, on the high places. It doesn't say anything critical of King Josiah. He lived essentially from 640 to 610 BCE, uh, right at the tail end of the Assyrian Empire, which was coming apart at the seams at this time. In fact, Assyria is really the destruction of Syria plays a role with the death of Josiah. So he became king, as I said, at age eight, but uh, was probably overseen by family members until he was about 18. And so when he was a young man, he started initiating right away upon assuming power, a reconstruction project for the temple, which had 
seems to have fallen into dis disrepair. And during this reconstruction, they discovered a book of instruction that's mentioned repeatedly. Most scholars believe that book of instruction was the book of Deuteronomy, which had probably fairly recently come to, uh, was, was finally con composed, or at least a piece, a section of Deuteronomy. Uh, it's, it's connected, the way it describes the reforms of King Josiah seem to be connected to the book of Deuteronomy for a number of reasons. But so most scholars have suggested that the book of Deuteronomy as kind of a new and updated Mosaic law. Like they were looking to Moses as the ancient inspiration for the law, but Moses lived many centuries in the past. And, and how do you update the law for our day and age? How do you take that message in the core of the Mosaic thrust of worshiping Yahweh and Yahweh alone and update it so it really works for our day and time? And so that's probably something of what Deuteronomy was. It was like a simplified, updated version of the Mosaic law that uh, that made it harder to fall into idolatry and that strengthened the law so that people would follow over it perhaps more faithfully than they had in the past. So this new book of instruction, as I said, was uh, is written in the narrative uh, d display. It's written as uh, reflecting Moses at the end of his life. But as, as I said, it's more than likely um, actually a, a fairly newly written work, not really by Moses, uh, but a plan to re-energize the older Mosaic code for a new age. So when they're thinking of Moses writing this, it was more like that spirit of Moses from the ancient time reigniting the law and, and reaffirming the basic core of the law, but updating it for a new day. And it heightened the anti-idolatry agenda. And it also more strongly emphasized the blessings and the curses related to the law. So Josiah, the story of uh, in 2 Kings chapter 22, it describes the rebuilding or the uh, the reconstruction or the repair work that's done in the temple and it describes the financing for it. And th while they're working in the temple, they discover this particular um, book of instruction and um, and so they, they give it from one person to another, finally gets to the priest, the Hilkiah, and Hilkiah brings it to Josiah and reads it before him. And, uh, and Josiah responds with absolute terror. The book of instruction says that there's hell to pay if you don't uh, obey this book of the law. And the, Josiah realizes that, you know, we have not been keeping this law. We have not been faithful to Yahweh as, as the law requires. So it says, Yahweh must be, or here's what Josiah says, Yahweh must be furious with us because our ancestors have failed to obey the words of this scroll. But how do you authenticate the scroll? Today, we would maybe do some carbon-14 dating and we'd have some other academic ways of analysis to find out its authenticity. But in that day and age, they wanted to find authenticity or to authenticate the scroll. And so they bring it to a prophetess, interestingly, a female prophet. They bring it to Huldah, a prophetess, to, uh, to ask her, you know, what do you think of this scroll? that we found and what do we do with this? And Hulda's message is not very encouraging. She essentially says, so I'm summarizing here 2 Kings chapter 23, chapter 22. Hulda essentially um, says it's too late. Doom is certain because your ancestors have gone too far in ignoring this law. Destruction and exile is certain just as Deuteronomy predicts or just as this law of instruction predicts of those who ignore Yahweh's laws. 
Yahweh says, my anger burns against this place, never to be quenched because they've deserted me and have burned incense to other gods, angering me by everything they have done. Now that's a direct quote from chapter 22, verse 17. So this is what Yahweh is saying to them, my anger burns. So basically the message of Huldah is discouraging. It's like, We've already, our ancestors have already done so much damage through the sins that they've committed that we've gone too far and that there's really no hope. The doom of God is already out, out uh, unleashed upon us and God's destruction is already in the works and there's no getting it back. And she said, but you, Josiah, because, and so this is Hulda continuing, but you, Josiah, and I'm at, I don't remember if she, anyway, her basic message is, but you, Josiah, because you've been so repentant, you particularly won't experience this in your lifetime. All this destruction is going to happen after you die. Now, I'm sure that gave him great comfort, right? Well, Josiah, you're not going to experience this great devastation, but... Uh, sorry for your family, but they're going to experience it. It's okay to be you, but it sucks to be your kids. I mean, this is not real encouraging stuff. So here we are, Josiah, this boy king, is 18 years old, has started this uh, project to rebuild and reconstruct the temple. And while they're doing it, they find a scroll. They bring it to him. They read it to him. He repent. He is devastated by how uh, out of sync their present worship is in light of the scroll's commandments. They bring the scroll to Hulda. Hulda says when she hears of this scroll, she says, you're doomed. This scroll says you're doomed. God is... Uh, uh, going to punish the sins of your ancestors. They're so overwhelming that uh, there's no going back. We've reached the point of no return. We're doomed. The only comfort I've got for you, Josiah, is that this doom won't happen in your lifetime. So there Josiah is. You might think that he would totally give up, that he would say, well, forget it then. Why try to change anything? The cards of the deck is already set. But instead, Josiah begins the biggest reform movement in Israel's history, or in Judah's history. These reforms are often called the Deuteronomic reforms related to the newly published book of Deuteronomy, if that theory is correct. So the completely purified, so Josiah completely purifies the temple of all idolatrous images and emblems. He tells, tears down every pagan shrine and every pagan altar outside of Jerusalem and the countryside. They hold a Passover according to the Book of Instructions requirements. Uh, that's probably Deuteronomy 16, which requires everyone to offer the Passover sacrifice in Jerusalem itself and not out in the countryside as the older Passover laws seem to allow, allow and that would be Exodus 12. So Josiah is this absolutely perfect king. There's no besmirching his record like Bathsheba was for King David. There's absolutely nothing on this guy's record to count against him. He's, I think, to my knowledge, he's the only king from ancient Israel that, of which we can say that, that there's nothing on Josiah's record that would be a negative. So I'm going to read uh, two kings 23 verses 26 through the uh, through 30. So 2 Kings, if you want to read along, 2 Kings 23, 26 through 30. Nevertheless, 
Yahweh did not turn away from the heat of his fierce anger, which burned against Judah because of all that Manasseh had done to arouse his anger. So Yahweh said, I will remove Judah also from my presence as I removed Israel, and I will reject Jerusalem, the city I chose, and this temple about which I said, my name shall be there. So after all these reforms, after Josiah does everything that could possibly be done to fix this problem, this is what he gets at the end. Nevertheless, the Lord did not turn away from the heat of his, the force of his anger, of his fierce anger. It's extraordinary. It's like, come on, give him a break. Then verse 28, as for the other events of Josiah's reign and all that he did, are they not written in the book of the annals of the kings of Judah? While Josiah was king, Pharaoh Necho, king of Egypt, went up to the Euphrates River to help the king of Assyria. King Josiah marched out to meet him in battle, but Necho faced him and killed him at Megiddo. Josiah's servants brought his body in a chariot from Megiddo to Jerusalem and buried him in his, in his own tomb. And the people of the land took Jehoahaz, the son of Josiah, and anointed him and made him king in place of his father. So you would think that after all Josiah does, that it would be enough. You know, but God says here in this passage, it's not enough. God lets Josiah go be killed at the age of 39 in a senseless battle that was completely unnecessary. So the historical background here to the death of of, uh, Josiah, uh, the Assyrian Empire is imploding. It's just completely coming apart at the scenes. And Babylon is the big uh, uh, empire on its ascendancy. ascendancy, And uh, the Egyptians don't want Babylon to take over. And so uh, so Pharaoh Necho is on his way up to kind of assist and bail out the flailing Assyrian army, which is actually uh, expelled from their own capital city in, in an area called Haran. And so Pharaoh Necho is on his way up there. And Josiah, he has no dog in this fight. All he has to do is sit back and wave bye-bye to Pharaoh Necho as he goes through the land, bringing his army up to fight the Assyrians. But instead, for some reason, doesn't even provide a reason. For some reason, Josiah seems to think it's worth his while to go out and attack the the Pharaoh's army. And he goes and does it, and immediately he's killed. And that's the end of the story. Now, 2 Chronicles 35 does add a message that Pharaoh Necho says to Josiah, and essentially says, hey, what? just let me by. Why are you attacking me? What's the problem? I'm not here to fight you. And besides, God has told me to tell you to back off. For some mysterious reason, Josiah didn't pay any attention. He attacked Pharaoh Necho, and he's immediately killed. The story of Judah spins out of control at that point. Babylon is the new superpower. They subjugate and eventually completely destroy Judah and Jerusalem in 587. And so 23 years later, the whole kingdom of Jerusalem or Judah is is gone. And so this great reform that Josiah carried out under the direction of the priests and the people of the land and the new book of Deuteronomy, if that's the, what's the going on in the background, it all ends in nothing. It all ends for naught. There's no real good that comes of it as far as we can tell, as the text even gives us reason to believe. So I named this talk the Josiah Enigma, and there are really two enigmas here in this text that I want to lay out for you. The first one is Huldah's prophecy. That's an enigma. Why wasn't Huldah more hopeful and encouraging? Why wasn't God more responsible to Josiah through Huldah? The prophet Jeremiah is prophesying, prophesying right around this time. And if you go back to Jeremiah 7, he 
he's very encouraging. He's like, if you turn, if you give up your evil ways, if you come back and worship me, I will meet you in this place. I will turn from my destructive plan for you, and I will give you a new day. And if you read um, Jeremiah 7, as I said, it's very hopeful. It's called the altar sermon of Jeremiah. And yet, hold it, this same time is so discouraging. It's like, nope, you've gone too far. There's no hope for you other than the fact that these terrible judgments are going to happen after you die, Josiah. This is going to happen to your children, so you won't have to look at it particularly yourself, but there's no getting out of it. This has gone too far, and my judgment is already set in place. So why wasn't God more encouraging, consistent with the promise of divine blessing associated with covenant faithfulness? Because the covenant itself, all over, in the Old Testament, but particularly in the book of Deuteronomy. If you want to check this out, go to Deuteronomy 28 or Leviticus 26. So both in the older Mosaic Code or in the newer version of Moses' law in the book of Deuteronomy, in either case, there's this very, very clear language that if you follow the law and if you keep God's laws, God will bless you. God will pour out blessings upon you. God will uh, has one blessing after another. It just goes on and on and on. And here we have Josiah doing exactly that, following this law with a fullness of his heart. It even describes him in the Bible as almost being like uh, like Joshua, the great Joshua of old. He's the only king that we know of that really seems to have taken the Deuteronomy 17, the laws that restrict the king to basically being a student of the Torah. Josiah is the only king we know of that even comes close to following these. So here we have the perfect king of Israel that should just get an abundant, abundant outpouring of the blessing of God, and yet the actual message that that Huldah has for him is no hope. So that's the first enigma. Why wasn't she more encouraging to Josiah in light of the covenant that has so much encouragement in it for being a person that follows law. Now, what she says is that they've her the kings before have gone too far and that, you know, we've just gone beyond the point of no return. But Jeremiah doesn't seem to be saying that, and he's prophesying at the same time. Jeremiah is still very hopeful. So why is Huldah so confusingly discouraging uh, in, in, so this is the enigma number one. We should just add in uh, Josiah's favor that in spite of the message of doom of Huldah the prophetess, Josiah still goes out after he hears the message of doom and completes the most com- thorough reformation and, and clarif- a cleansing of the religious practice of ancient Israel, even though he does it in the face of this doomful, uh, discouraging message of Huldah. Again, something in Josiah's favor. So that's the first enigma. But the second enigma is why didn't God protect Josiah more in battle? He's following the law. He's trying to keep the law with all of his ability. He's like the perfect king, actually following the the restrictive laws of the king in Deuteronomy 17. He's the only king in ancient Israel that does this. Deuteronomy promises protection of the people that keep these laws in battle. Those who keep these laws will be protected. Deuteronomy 28 says... Yahweh will cause your enemies who rise against you to be struck before you. So that's what, if you keep the law, this is what Yahweh promises. But here we have Josiah, the person who keeps God's law, goes into battle and he's immediately shot. It does no good. There's no protection for him in keeping the law. This is the enigma. These are the two enigmas related to the life of King Josiah, and both of them are, in a sense, the same enigma. Essentially, what we have here is the principle of divine retribution 
in a collapse mode. In other words, the Bible all over the Bible, all over it from beginning to end, in the, especially in the books of Moses, there's a powerful message of divine retribution. If you follow Yahweh faithfully, you'll be blessed. If you don't follow Yahweh, you'll be cursed. Leviticus uh, 26 says, if you walk in my statutes and keep my commandments, and if you do them, then I will give peace to you, and you will lie down, and no one will make you afraid. You will chase your enemies one way, and they will uh, you'll chase your enemies and they will fall by the sword. It goes on and on in that mode. And here we have Josiah as the perfect keeper of the law. He walks into the battle and is immediately shot. Who was more faithful and righteous than Josiah? And yet he died senselessly in exactly the way the law promises he would not die. So the retribution principle, which is endemic in the whole of the Hebrew scriptures, and I've got some podcasts about this. You can look back and listen up on them if you haven't, uh, haven't done that already. There's a lot of material out there in this podcast on the principle of divine retribution, and I've really traced it through much of the Hebrew scriptures, although I didn't in that process deal with this particular passage. So what's going on here is we here in this passage see that this understanding of the law of divine retribution Retribution, that if you keep the law faithfully, you'll be blessed. If you don't keep the law, you'll be cursed. And again, the two key places are Deuteronomy 28 and Leviticus 26. You can check those out on your own. That uh, retribution principle is failing. It's just not working for people. People are looking at it going, it doesn't work. Holda's prophecy does nothing to encourage Josiah. This Deuteronomy approach is supposed to encourage faithfulness. And in, but in promising doom, there's no comfort there. There's no encouragement. What good can come for you out of following God's laws if it's all going to hell anyway, if everything's going to go wrong anyway? Where is the good in keeping God's laws as the laws promise? And then so, and then he's faithful and he tries his best and nothing comes of it, nothing even good for him personally. He goes into the law and the divine protection that's promised in the law in both Deuteronomy 28 and Leviticus 26 does not come to pass. He goes into the law, he's, he goes into battle, he's promptly shot and within 25 years the whole country is destroyed and it goes over to the Babylonians. There is a mental revolution going on here. There's a huge opinion shift. Somehow people are realizing and looking at this situation, something's gone wrong. What we thought would happen didn't happen. We got this wrong. Moses got this wrong. This set off kind of an intellectual revolution in the thought of ancient Israel. And we have uh, increasingly psalms written that are asking hard questions about the law, like laments asking, God, where are you? I'm faithful to you. I'm not. I'm holding out my hands. If, if I was worshiping idols, I'd understand why you're crushing me here. But you're, I'm worshiping you and worshiping you as faithfully as I know how, and I'm not getting any blessing out of it. In other words, because of this Josiah story, the whole theory or paradigm of divine retribution starts to unravel. The people start to realize they've got it wrong. They had a big theory on how God and stuff worked, but their big, big theory didn't match reality very well. And increasingly, it lost its power, and they found that they had to come up with something new, and they started asking really hard questions, as are depicted in the book of Job and the book of Ecclesiastes. And when we get to the New Testament, as you'll know if you listen to the podcasts I've done on this topic, 
there's something of a paradigm shift. There's a new way of understanding that comes out of this collapse. And we get to the New Testament, someone comes to Jesus and they say, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he's born blind? And he says, neither sinned, but this happened so that the glory of God might be known. Now, according to Deuteronomy, somebody sinned because this guy's born blind. And yet Jesus has a new understanding. The paradigm is broken down. We have a new paradigm established, and Jesus seems to reject this old uh, Old Testament paradigm of divine retribution that's all over the books of Moses and the Old Testament and it comes up with a new way of understanding the relationship between godliness and experiencing the good life. So what we have here is a story of a paradigm shift, a story of, of an instance where a major understanding of how God works in the world comes apart at the seams. And what do you do? What do you do when you're in a situation where you have a way of understanding things and you realize as time goes on, it just doesn't work. I don't think I'm right. I think that I need to change my mind on this topic because seriously, there's a serious changing of the mind between the Old Testament and the New on this very topic. And as you read, carefully read the Old Testament from beginning to end, you can kind of watch this coming apart at the seams where earlier on in the Bible, there's real confidence that if we're faithful to the covenant. God will bless us and God will do all these very specific things for us to promise that to bless us as we uh, keep this covenant. But as time goes on, it becomes clear to them that it doesn't work. And Josiah is, is really the most obvious case in point where the theory doesn't work here. And there's reason to believe that there's a major shift in the way people are thinking in Israel and a, a realization that the the big theory, the big paradigm that they had doesn't work very more and they're going to have to come up with a new one. And so I want to just talk about this process. I mean, what do you do when your big theory doesn't work anymore? What do you do when you have a situation where you realize, you know, I'm just wrong. I just have to change my mind. I've, I've been thinking in this way for years, and, and now I'm going to have to come up with a new way to put the pieces of this puzzle together. And this is a painful but an exciting process of growth. First, you have to recognize, and I just want to talk about the process of changing your mind. First, you have to recognize humbly that your old theory isn't working. And that takes a certain amount of humility. It takes a certain amount of courage. It takes a certain amount of honesty, but it's so worth it. And the second thing you have to do is to identify exactly what isn't working and why. When you move from an initial state of naivete and you enter into a period of darkness, when you enter an initial state of, maybe naivete isn't the right word, but an initial state of confidence about how the world works, and then you begin to realize you must be wrong, and then you enter into a time of darkness, it can often be called the dark night of the soul, where you struggle, it just doesn't make sense. And eventually, often you come out with a renewed faith, with a, a secondary naivete, as it is often called, a firmer foundation. And you have this thrill of knowing that you faced the darkness and you came out stronger for it. And the third thing that is that you need to also realize what you don't want to reject. Where the ba- what's the baby and what's the bathwater? 
So there's a danger of walking away from too much, of radical rejection, of saying, well, if that's the case, I'm just going to completely reject everything. There's a danger in that. Radical rejection of maybe more traditional values has little to offer us. Sometimes a fairly minor shift in opinion is very helpful. When I was working on my PhD, I went through a real time of emotional crisis, particularly in my understanding of the Bible as God's Word. I've told this story before, even on this podcast. And I had to get away for a while, and I went to a monastery called in Trappist, Kentucky, and had a stack of books to read. And I, I came back from that with a real renewed faith, a real sense of the excitement of what my faith was about and the direction that I was going. But it took time to really stop and think deeply about the nature of this journey on which I'm walking. Recently, my wife and I have read the book by Richard Rohr called The Universal Christ. I have a friend that describes that book as when he came about to read it, he said, this is a book I've been waiting my whole life to read. It's a book that's really transformed a lot of people's faith. A lot of people have been very critical of it, thinking that he's a universalist. Uh, I don't think that's part of what the claim that he's making, but, uh, but it's a very powerful book that's been deeply transformative in, in many ways. And it kind of gives you a whole new perspective, a whole new way to think about the way your faith engages with the world around you. So my goal here is to simply give you permission on your spiritual journey to rethink some things, to change your mind on some things. The people of ancient Israel had to do that. They had to change their mind because this paradigm didn't work. Uh, sometimes people who are very, very righteous are suffered deeply, and some people, times people who are really wicked get seem, uh, seemingly have lives of ease and comfort. And the, and the paradigm that they were working from wouldn't have allowed that. And, I, and the Bible seems to recognize that there are shifting opinions that are out there, and it's okay. We don't have to throw everything into doubt. There is a very clear narrative structure to the Bible that gives a sense of unity, that gives it, you know, kind of one story that the Bible is telling. But there's a lot of differences of opinion and a lot of opinions being changed within the Bible itself on some key topics. And I want to just point out that this is part of our humanity, right? Uh, as human beings, if we're not changing our minds on some things, we're not growing. And if our faith doesn't give us permission to change our mind and to grow, then we're stuck. We're somehow spiritually immature. There's a, something about spiritual maturity that comes in looking at things in a new light to change your mind, to recognize, wow, I don't have to believe that. I could actually look at it from this perspective over, over here. We are going to change our minds as human beings. That's just part of our humanity. But we need to learn how to do it well. And my goal here is to, first of all, give you permission as a human being, as a person of faith, to change your mind on some things. And secondly, to, uh, to do it well, to do it as a person who, uh, who knows how to face darker questions and spiritual enigmas, but to do it well. So here's some advice I would give you to help you to, to make these, to, to go through the process of changing your mind in a way that's spiritually wholesome. First of all, I would say always go through these times in your life in conversations with the community of faith. Always do this with 
friends around you who can help to bolster you and give you uh, new insights because sometimes there's something you just haven't thought of and that that you should we, we should have a certain sense of loyalty to the old way so there's a part of me that's like excited about changing my mind but there's also a part of me that's committed to the old way it's like I have a, a liberal ethic but a conservative um, outlook a conservative set of values there's something to be valued in the old way but the old ways don't always explain things well enough there's sometimes you need to change and so so but we should operate from a sense of loyalty to the old way and only change when we need to in other words we shouldn't just throw everything to the wind and change our mind on everything we should kind of have a commitment to the old way but be open to new ways of thinking and so first of all I'd like you to uh, encourage you to be in conversation with others to be in conversation with a community of faithful people around you so that they can give you insights maybe there's things that you just haven't thought of before uh, that can be helpful to you and it helps you to to on one hand not just be stuck in the mud but also not to go too far in things and the second thing is I would encourage you to do it in conversation with Scripture. Very often when you change your mind on something, there are passages that are out there that suddenly you see with a new light. You go, oh my goodness, I never really thought of thinking of that passage as having something to say about this topic. And so very often as you... as you begin to realize that some of your older ways of thinking aren't working for you anymore, then you can uh, look at Scripture again, and you'll often find there, there are new insights there. And then the third thing I would encourage you to do is to be clear exactly about what you're leaving and what you're hanging on to. Uh, you'll find these things even become, a lot of things that you're hanging on to become even more value as you give up certain things that are holding you back. And so uh, those are three uh, pieces of, inform- of, of encouragement. First of all, as I said before, always go through times like this in conversation with others in the community of faith. Secondly, always be in conversation with Scripture. And three, be clear in your own mind on what you're leaving and what you're coming back to. Mm-hmm. 